Good morning. My name is Sally, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. And I want to thank the committee for asking Keith and I to come to Tyler. And I want to thank the committee for the uh, lovely, lovely basket of fruit in our room. And I want to thank you for asking us to come to Tyler, especially because I love to come to Texas. I love the program in Texas. I love the, uh, the way that Al-Anon and AA work together here. I always feel like I'm home because I was born in Oklahoma and grew up there till I was 14. So when I come back here, um, it's like being home. But if I don't say anything else this morning that I really know for the truth today because, you know, our feelings change from day to day, I do know this. I know that I am a member of Al-Anon. And I know that I'm a member of Al-Anon not because I'm married to an alcoholic, not because I have a daughter who's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm a member of Al-Anon because I go to Al-Anon meetings on a consistent basis, and I know that's what makes me a member of Al-Anon. So what I tell you today is simply what I know about Sally Carpenter since I came to Al-Anon, because um, I know that I didn't really know a lot about me or anything else before that time, and I did not come because I thought that I needed to come to Al-Anon, but I think that's a part of most anybody's story. The thrill of being asked to go anywhere and participate at any level, in a meeting or in a conference, uh, has never left me. When Frank called uh, several months ago, I got that same feeling uh, when he asked if Keith and I would come here as I got about 16 years ago and I got a call that to come to Phoenix, Arizona, and we lived in California at the time. And I had never been asked to go anywhere outside our little immediate area. And the way that I felt that day um, was the way I felt when Frank called me. And I particularly was excited that time because this conference that I went to in Phoenix, the way that they had the program set up at Saturday, on Saturday night, I was going to talk at the same time that uh, Joe, your Joe here, Wino Joe, was going to talk. And that was very unusual because in Southern California, Al-Anons do not participate on the same program with an alcoholic at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. At Al-Anon, yes, but not at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And we had met Joe and uh, Mary a few times, and I just stood in awe of this man. And to be sitting next to him and sharing on the same program just, just thrilled me to no end coupled with the fact that it's the first time that I'd ever gone anywhere. And so doing um, what was uh, taught to me to go early, of course I overshot the mark and went about two days early, and I did all the things, you know, I went out and I bought the new dress and I got the new hairdo, and uh, Keith and I went to Phoenix, checked into the hotel, and the day before the conference, I got all dressed up and went down to the lobby of the, of the hotel, and I had the program there, and I was reading it and admiring my name in print right alongside Joe's. And I was sitting on a couch, and there was uh, one man sitting on this side of me and one man sitting on this side of me. And uh, I took an inventory of them, and I figured they probably had about 100 years sobriety between them. But then I looked at their faces, and I don't think they'd enjoyed a day of it. And one leaned across me and said to the other, this is an AA conference. What have they got that Al-Anon on there for? And my heart fell. And I thought about it then, and as I know today, I was there for the same reason that I'm here, or the same reason that I go to any Al-Anon meeting. And that's because my life has been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And that's why I'm in Al-Anon, because my life has definitely been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And I know today that that's a family disease. But I didn't know it, of course, when I came to Al-Anon, nor did I think I needed the program of Al-Anon. But what Al-Anon has taught me is uh, a lot of things. I could always tell you how, what I thought about a lot of things, but I could never really tell you how I felt. I didn't know anything about feelings, and that came from probably, not from the fact that I'm the child of an alcoholic, because my family didn't drink 
My family didn't do anything unless, as my grandmother used to say, you don't do it unless it's tasteful. You toe the line. And my family didn't do anything unless it was tasteful. And they didn't do a lot of things that Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon has taught me. And that was to be demonstrative in affection. I never saw anybody in my family touch each other. I don't believe that I ever heard anyone in my family say to someone else, I love you. It was just an understood thing that we loved each other, but you didn't show it. And I married into a family that was very demonstrative and very touching and uh, kissy, and they kissed you when you came in the room, and they kissed you when you left the room, and all of those kind of things. And so those were, those are, that is one of the things that I have had to learn, and I'm grateful that I did since I came to Al-Anon. But this family that didn't drink or do anything else, you know, a lot of times we hear about statistics and uh, things that they've done to prove why we go out and get our own little alcoholic. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not, but I can tell you this. This family that I came from, one side was full-blood German and the other side was full-blood Indian. And Indians aren't long on work. And um, my great-grandmother had 13 children. And none of the boys worked, but there was one uncle, Uncle Ferris. And at a very early age, I knew that nobody in the family really liked Uncle Ferris but me. And I really liked him because, number one, he was probably the only one in the family who ever did anything that, I, that looked like to me that was exciting or fun. And he was tall and lithe and dark-skinned and handsome. And he wore, wore uh, hand-silk uh, sewn shirts, and he wore Stetson hats and custom-made boots. And he always had a nice-looking lady on his arm. And Uncle Ferris would go away sometimes for two or three weeks. And nobody talked about it when Uncle Ferris was gone. And when he came back, he'd sit in the rocking chair and rock. And I didn't know where he'd been or what he'd done, but it looked like to me he must have had a real good time because he looked awful tired. And they'd talk about Uncle Ferris in whispered tones, you know. And uh, I realized today that Uncle Ferris had a severe drinking problem. So if there's any truth to the fact that we are attracted to alcoholics, that might be true. But, you know, I'm a firm believer if you want excitement, hang out with alcoholics because uh, you never know what's going to happen. And I had my share of that. But I lived in this family, and, um, you know, it was, a, it was an average, good standard upbringing, nothing really exciting or not anything to write home about. And at about age 14... My folks were divorced when I was very young. I don't remember my mother and father living together at all, but they had this very civilized uh, divorce. And so my sister and I were back and forth between the two sets of grandparents and relatives, and Hugo and McAllister are not that far apart. So when I was 14, my sister and my mother and I moved to California. Now that's, if you've read Steinbeck, that's what you're supposed to do if you're raised in Oklahoma. You go to California. And we did, and... Um, I started at East Bakersfield High School there, and um, that's where I met him, which further along in this talk will be known as my alcoholic, or Keith, or him. But I had started high school to there, there, and um, in case any of you were here last night, I'm the one with the blue eyes, not the brown eyes. 38 years I've been married to this man, and he tells you last night I have brown eyes. <laughs> Anyway, I was in high school there, and I was coming out of the music building one day, and uh, he drove up in a convertible. We were talking about cars at breakfast this morning. He drove up in a convertible, and I came out of that music building, and I spied him, and I did uh, all the little things that we learned somewhere along the way to attract them, shaking my pom-poms or whatever. And he came across the lawn, and... Uh, struck up a conversation, and he told me that that car was his. Now, it wasn't. It belonged to his mother. But, you know, I believed him. And that was to set a pattern for the next 18 years. I believed everything that he told me. And I'm grateful today that I did, because one of the things that I always believed when he said it was, I'll never do that again. I won't drink like that again. And I always believed Keith when he would tell me that. And I know today that I didn't believe him so much 
because he was trying to con me and doing a good job about it. I believed him when he would tell me I won't drink like that again because when I would look at him, something told me that he believed it. And I know today after having been in this program and heard Keith and other alcoholics share at meetings that when he said it, he believed it and that's what he really wanted. So I'm grateful that I believed him right from the beginning, everything that he ever told me. Now, it wasn't always the best for us, but it got us through a lot of times. So I met Keith, and, you know, he was all of the things. The first time I looked at him, you know, I thought, they don't grow things like that in Oklahoma. They haven't, and they still don't probably. But he was big and handsome, and, you know, and when he drove up, people whispered, oh, there he is, there's Keith. He used to go to school here, you know. And he was all of the things that, that were exciting. And we started going together, and from the very first date, there was always drinking involved. And I can honestly say that uh, we had a lot of fun behind drinking. And Keith always drank a lot, probably drank more than most everybody else, and he always had the car, and he always drove everyone home. And besides that, when he drank, he was so cute. Oh, he was just so cute when he drank, and he'd just do the cutest things. And our courtship was like any other courtship. And we got married and we moved to San Jose. <clears throat> and he was going to go to, <clears throat> or went to college there. And we moved into a little apartment. And it was uh, like any other typical apartment at that time. It was after the uh, Korean War. And a lot of veterans were going to school. We lived in veterans housing. And that was very fortunate because, as Keith told you last night, we were both very young. And we were living on a very, very scarce income, a scholarship, and the money that he made working at a clothing store. And that was good because we were not immediately thrown into that thing of trying to keep up with the Joneses with the little house in the suburb and all of the things. Everybody was on the same economic level that we were. Nobody had any money. Everybody was going to school and everybody had kids. So I think that was fortunate because I'm quite sure at that early age, I anyway would have tired very easily of the humdrum existence of marriage and babies. and. Uh, but I had this thing in my head, and that thing was really what it was, was a unilateral decision that I had made that as soon as he got out of college that we would move to a little house in the Midwest, and he would be chairman of the athletic department, and I would be chairman of the faculty wives, and we were going to have what I have come to know in Al-Anon, what we call the picture. And the picture was not probably unlike what any of you might have had in your mind. The picture was the little house with a white picket fence. And Keith would be sitting in a big leather overstuffed chair smoking a pipe. He didn't smoke, but that didn't make any difference because the pictures always had the guy with a pipe. And there would probably be a big red Irish setter at the side of his chair, and the children would be huddled at his feet clean, of course. And I would be in the kitchen with Priscilla curtains on the windows in my apron cooking in a clean kitchen, of course. And that was the picture that I had. So all during these years that um, he was going to school, it really didn't matter how, when he drank. I mean, sometimes it was a little bothersome when he didn't come home. But it was no big deal because I knew as soon as he got out of college that we would move to that little town, wherever it was. Keith was born and raised in California. Why I ever thought he'd move to the Midwest, I don't know. But I knew as soon as he graduated from college and we got there, he'd, he'd give up the drinking. And he wouldn't, anyway, he wouldn't be hanging out with those guys, and so they wouldn't be twisting his arm to go to Tenth and Keys and all those places. And it'd be okay. And that was the way our life was going to be. And, you know, that thought got me through a lot of times, too. So I'm really grateful sometimes. You know, we have a, a piece of literature in Al-Anon called uh, uh, the merry-go-round called Denial. And maybe sometimes, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. Because um, when I would think those thoughts, it got me through the time. Just as soon as he gets out of school, we'll, we won't be like this. It's going to be different. Well, it was. It wasn't really like my script, but, you know, that, that didn't deter me in any way from believing that it was going to be that way. Because when Keith graduated from San Jose, of course, we did not move to the Midwest. He uh, got into the uh, professional football, and the people were very good to us. That was an exciting life, and we uh, had a lot of things happen to us that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And when he got the notice or the call to go to Canada, you know, I'd never been anywhere. You'd have thought I was going to the ends of the earth to cross the border and go to Canada, so that sounded exciting to me. And so we packed up those two children, 
a beautiful little baby girl and a curly-headed little baby boy and got in that car and started off to drive from California to Canada. And I know it didn't happen, but I always think that Keith must have seen one of those big Foster Kleiser signs that when we crossed from the United States to Canada, it probably said, Drink Canada Dry. And he probably thought, what an order. I think I'll try to go through with it. Because it seemed to me at that time that's what he might have been doing. And we drank our way across Canada, as he told you, from Edmonton to Winnipeg, from Winnipeg to Toronto. <clears throat> and by the time we got to Toronto, our daughter, Kim, was, her, was uh, the age to start to school. And so I thought, well, it would be best if we, the children and I went back to California and uh, she started to school there. And anyway, Keith told me that he would follow. I left in August, and he told me that he would follow in, in uh, December because between August and December, you see, he was going to make a million dollars sell, selling mausoleums up there, and then everything would be okay because we'd have all this money to just live happily ever after. So the children and I went back to California, and our daughter started to school, and Keith did follow, uh, came down the next Christmas. He had not made the million dollars, and... Um, I don't think he uh, was welcome back in whatever town it was he was supposed to make it, but that's his story. And we um, moved not to the little house in the Midwest on the tree-covered street, but we moved to Ridgecrest, and Ridgecrest is on the Mojave Desert. But you know, the fact that there was not a little house with a white picket fence and a lot of trees on the street didn't deter me in the least. I knew that we could be as happy on the Mojave Desert where it gets 110 at 6 o'clock in the morning and the scorpions and the tar weed grow, uh, as we would be in that little picture, because I just knew that I could fix it. I knew that I could make it okay. And I did the only things that I knew to do to make it that way, and that was to try to keep him from drinking and have the perfect house and the perfect children. And, of course, the drinking progressed and things didn't change because, you know, neither one of us knew that what, you know, besides the two children and Keith and I in that house, there lived a thing called a disease called alcoholism. I just thought that he drank too much and he didn't drink like those other people. And we moved from the desert and we moved to Bakersfield. And it was going to be different there because we both were from Bakersfield and our family, my, my mother and his mother lived there. And so it was going to be better because we'd have the family thing and we'd buy a little house. And we did. Now, it wasn't a little house with a white picket fence, but it was okay because I knew that I could make it okay. And I worked at that very hard, but I realized today from that time that we moved into that little house in East Bakersfield that the disease of alcoholism had started and was doing the things that it does to families. And it had started making the changes, certainly, in me. I know that alcoholics are obsessed with alcohol. Well, I was obsessed with, with his drinking. More obsessed with his drinking than I think he was with alcohol. Because I don't think Keith ever got up in the morning and thought, well, this bar opens at 6 and I can make it in 10 minutes and... Whatever, But, you know, I used to do that. From the minute I got up in the morning, I would think, you know, where could he go at 6 o'clock in the morning and which kid could I send with him so that he wouldn't do those things today? And uh, will I have a car with gas in it to go look for him tonight if he doesn't come home? Because we lived in Bakersfield now, and, uh, you know, he was home, and as he told you, he was selling cars, and that's, you know, Disneyland for drunks because... Uh, he did work a half a day and drink till the bars closed at night. And at this time, I know, is when the disease of alcoholism started doing the things to that family that it does. And these two children, at this, the two children that we had, or we had three now, we uh, were uh, about 10, 9, and uh, a baby. And I thought it was the time now to get down to this business of living. I wasn't too thrilled, and he wasn't so cute anymore when he drank. It was really quite aggravating. And he didn't mow the lawn and clean out the garage and do those things like the guy across the street. But I had this plan, and my plan was, I know today, this is 2020 hindsight. My plan was, if I do all the things that I think he's supposed to do, and I, what I thought he was supposed to do, I got from where I drew all the knowledge about being married and a mother and an adult and anything else, and that was from books and movies. 
And my plan was if I do all of the things that he's supposed to do, two things are going to happen. One, I'm going to look good. And two, he's going to feel so guilty he'll do them. And if he, do, he feels out guilty, if he doesn't do them, I'll get my way in some little, little thing. <clears throat> and I picked this because I realized it was one of the things that I probably spent the most time on. And that was, I decided that if you were going to have a perfect marriage, you had to have a perfect house, and particularly you had to have a perfect lawn. And it had a twofold thing why I chose the lawn, because it also gets very hot in Bakersfield. And, you know, as I think about it today, I, as I said, I only know this because I've learned it since I've been in Al-Anon. And uh, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't matter what our motives are in any case. And my motive then was, as I said, to make him feel guilty. But I had decided that he should mow the lawn, and since he wouldn't, I would. And it never occurred to me to do it early morning and evening. And I have to admit to you that I enjoy doing lawn work. But I would decide that if I had to do, if I was going to do this and it was going to look good, that I had to do it at the height of noon. And I'd get that push mower out. And this, of course, is after the house is totally immaculate. I was obsessed with this, this cleaning. And I know today the reason was the fact that I was obsessed with cleaning. And I mean that was down to the point of cleaning the word Frigidaire with a Q-tip and scrubbing the baseboards with a toothbrush. You know, if you came to visit me and sat still long enough, I would have probably dusted you or waxed you or done something, you know. But it carried over into the lawn. <clears throat> and what it did, I would get that push mower out and I would mow that lawn one way and then the other. And the more I mowed, the more angry I got because I knew that he wouldn't be home that night. And the more I would practice my speech that I was going to give him that would change his ways. And I would trim it, and I would wash it, and I would do it back and forth and do all of those things to it. And then I would just know that the neighbors were looking out the window. And they would be saying to each other, look at that poor little thing out there mowing the lawn, and he's down at Pot's back door having a good time. Now they could say it to each other, but don't ever, ever criticize Keith's drinking to me. Don't ever tell me that he drinks too much. I can talk about it but I don't want you to tell me about it. And you know, again, that's talked about in our literature of Al-Anon, that we will defend. So I would do all of this knowing that when he wheeled into that driveway, and most of the time he couldn't see the driveway, I don't know why I thought he'd see the lawn, but I knew that he would wheel into the driveway at 2 o'clock, Keith never stayed out all night, he always came home. I don't know why, but he always came home. And he would wheel into the driveway, and my thinking told me that he would see the lawn so immaculately done, and he would think, my goodness, now she did that, and I should have. I just feel guilty. So he would come into the driveway, <clears throat> and I would have been waiting up for him. And I would be standing at my station at the window, and when he would drive in, it was the old adage of the mouth connected to the doorknob, because when he turned the doorknob, the mouth started. And I had had all day, you see, to plan my speech. And I would tell him, what he had done wrong that day and the day before, and so did his mother. And then I would ask him, where have you been? Now, I knew where he had been because I had spent a great deal of the day on the phone finding out where he had been. So he was losers to begin with because if he told me the truth, I wouldn't have believed him. And if he didn't tell me what I thought that he had done, I wouldn't believe him. And then he would say, I have had a couple, so what? Now, other than coming home, that was his second mistake. Because when he said, so what, my script read to tell him. And he would waddle over there to his listening chair. And I would take that, what I call today, my talking position. And I would tell him, so what? And how he shouldn't do that. And if he loved us and all of those things. And I don't know what he did, but I think today probably what he did, he just kind of turned me off. And he would tune in when I came to the line, and you're an alcoholic. Now, I would save that to the very last because I knew it was the worst thing that I could say to him. And I could say alcoholic with the connotation of a four-letter word. I would not say alcoholic today the way I used to say it then in a church because I could make it sound so terrible. But when I said that, he knew that I was through with my speech and he would waddle off to bed and go to sleep or pass out, whatever the case was. And I would begin to experience at that time what I was unaware of then, 
but it was called guilt for myself. And I would feel guilty about the things that I had said to him and accused him of. And then I would say to myself, I wonder if the kids heard me. Now, we lived in a very small house with thin walls, but I would convince myself that even though you could have heard me two blocks away, that those children in the next room didn't hear me. So we talk about alcoholism being a family disease. As the non-alcoholic, I believe that I spread the disease aspect of alcoholism in that family more than Keith did. Keith was just a happy-go-lucky, everybody's petty, very drunk. I mean, everybody just loved him. He just loved drinking bars and hear that music and play pool and be whatever he wanted to be. Imagine, wouldn't that be wonderful to be a brain surgeon tonight and a jet pilot tomorrow night? You know, just anything you want to be, just anything. And uh, he never drank at home. Now, that's not to say he didn't have an occasional beer at home, but, I mean, he did not do his serious drinking at home. He drank in the bars. Of course, on the other hand, if you liked to drink, you would not have wanted to drink in our home either because I, I could perfect quite a look that would make you know that it was an uncomfortable situation for you. But he would pass out, and I would lay there, and I'd think, well, I don't think they heard me tonight. They, they were asleep. And those little children would get up the next morning, and they never knew what I was going to be like. And they would go off to school every morning with a different impression of mother, I'm sure. Maybe this morning, I would decide that I was not going to speak to anybody. They were all going to suffer. I was going to be quiet. But I'd be slamming the doors and throwing that cereal on the table, and if there's no milk for the dry cereal, you know, they would whisper to each other, don't say anything, don't upset her, just eat it like that, don't upset her, slamming doors, throwing the stuff on the table, stomping around the house, or maybe the next morning, I would be screaming at the top of my voice till the larynx stood out, you know, today they call it primal therapy, you know, well, whatever it was, I was doing it then. And maybe the next morning, uh, maybe I'd watched a Leave it to Beaver the day before, and I'd think, now that would be a nice way to live. And I'd put on a starch dress and my little pearls, and I'd fix this perfect breakfast. And those little kids would go off to school every day like that, not knowing what I was going to be like in the morning, and certainly not knowing what I was going to be like in the afternoon, because as the day went on, the adrenaline started, and I would be whatever I decided to be. And Keith, as I say, was the same. He really was very much, when he was drinking, like he is today. Happy, loving, gregarious, all of those things. I go to Al-Anon meetings and I hear people talk about living in physical violence. And I can't share on that because Al-Anon has taught me, unless I've had the experience, I really don't have anything to share about it. But Keith was not a physically violent person. I was. I was the verbally physical, violent person. Keith never hit me. I would have hit me a hundred times if I'd have been him. I used to stand with my nose in his chest and I would say, hit me, I dare you. You're watching this, kids? Hit me. He never hit me. If he had to hit me, you'd have a different speaker today. But that, you know, that was the run-of-the-mill days in the carpenter life. That's just the way it was. And he drank, and I reacted, and all of those things happened. And I haven't heard too many things in Al-Anon meetings that didn't happen in my home or someone that I know very close. And I did all of the things that our do's and don'ts tell us not to do, you know, all of those. Because all I wanted Keith to do was I just wanted him to drink like the guy across the street. Now, that guy had a beer occasionally when he mowed the lawn. Maybe a beer. Keith never drank one beer and he never mowed the lawn. We have been married 38 years in January and I have never heard Keith say, well, I think I'll go out and mow the lawn. I have given up. We live in an apartment now. And the man that owns it is a gardener. <laughs> so Z, you get, if you wait around long enough, you get what you want. We have a perfect lawn. However, one day Keith came to me and he said, well, we are going to move from Bakersfield because there is just nothing here for us. And that sounded good to me. And he told me we were going to move to Los Angeles, which is two hours from Bakersfield. Now, I thought Los Angeles consisted of the Coliseum where they play football and Julie's Bar across the street where they drank. That's all I'd ever seen of, Cal of Los Angeles. But, you know, we didn't move downtown Los Angeles. We moved into a little suburb called 
Woodland Hills. And that name was very apropos because we moved onto a street that was covered with pepper and eucalyptus trees and we lived in a little house with a white picket fence. And I knew that things were going to be different there. I just knew that it was going to be like I always wanted it to be. The only thing was, by now, the disease of alcoholism had progressed to the point where a great deal of damage had already been done family-wise, certainly, and I had begun to become the thing that we know that happens to us when we live in that disease called alcoholism. I had begun to make those changes. And Keith was going to do this wonderful, have this wonderful business and uh, make a lot of money. That was, seemed to be always the answer to our problems, if he could make a lot of money. He made a reasonable amount of money. He didn't bring any of it home, <clears throat> but he was making money, I, I guess. I really was too busy worrying about his drinking because by now the two older children had reached the age where they did not want to hear my whining and complaining anymore. They didn't want to hear the fact that I was going to leave and never ever come back because I had begun to do the thing that so many of us do. I began to run away from home a lot. Um, I'm not a fast starter. It took me a lot of years to find out if you're going to run away from home, you've got to have a car maybe would help and gas in it would certainly be helpful and some money. You know, you can only go up and sit in Ralph's parking lot until they open the market in the morning and you've got to do something. And I used to do that a lot. I'd get in the car. I'd wait until he came home at 2 o'clock and then I would get in the car and leave, never ever to return. I'm going to leave and take all the happiness from your life. I'm going to take these children and you will never see us again. As time went on, I found out there, I found a phrase that would just, I think it just sent cold chills up Keith's spine and that was, I am leaving and I'm going to leave the kids with you. <laughs> He'd straighten up those times. But we lived in this house and, you know, nothing changed. Outside it looked okay. But the drinking now had progressed to the point that it was, uh, I knew that there was something really, really wrong. And I now was caught up in this thing that I had to be those two people. I had to be the PTA chairman and I had to be the good neighbor and I had to be the Cub Scout leader and the Bluebird leader and all of those things because that was what I wanted out there for them to think that we had the perfect life. Keith's drinking now was certainly, as he told you, he's, you know, Keith was a daily, drunker and a, a daily drinker and a periodic drunk. He just, um, only two things Keith never drank was light beer and iced tea. He didn't like iced tea and they didn't have light beer then. Anything else he drank. But now the two older children, they were at the point where they'd say, you know, Mom, you know, do what you're going to do. Just if you move while we're gone today, let us know where to go home because, uh, you know, we've got things to do and places to go. And they were. They were involved in their own, own uh, life. Our daughter was in high school and our son was in junior, oldest son was in junior high. And our younger son had just started school. And somewhere along the way, I... Um, was, read a magazine and it, there was an article about the National Council and I cut that article out and I kept the address and one morning Keith got up and you know we learn and I knew when to strike I knew when I could get my way and this morning I asked him kind and sweet you know would you please go to the National Council he doesn't quite think of it as that way but I'm sure that that's the way I said it and he conceded to go to the National Council with me, and I knew that our problems were over. I knew that my prayers were answered because I knew that I would tell somebody how he drank and everything that he did wrong, and it'd be okay. And we walked into that <clears throat> building on Wilshire, and they took Keith into a room downstairs with a man named Frank. But they didn't let me go in. They took me upstairs, and this lady, I'm sure, must have talked about Al-Anon, since that's what she was there for. I do not remember a word she said, nor was I interested in the least, because I was concentrating on him downstairs, knowing that he was not going to tell that man how he drank and all the things that he did wrong and how I suffered. And when we left there, the man stopped me at the door, and he said, I don't think he's ready. And I had no idea what that man was talking about. And we left there, and for the next nine months, I don't believe a day went by that I didn't think, I wonder why he doesn't go to AA. 
Now, I've certainly left the number available for him. I wonder why he doesn't call. Never crossed my mind that I should go to Al-Anon, and there was a meeting within six blocks of my house. And in that nine months, I watched the drinking, and something told me that I just, there just wasn't anything else that I could do, that I had done everything that I could do, and I just knew it was bigger than both of us. So I decided that I was going to get a job. And I was going to get a job, and I was going to save enough money, and then I could go. And uh, I took this job. <clears throat> and, you know, we get what we can get just exactly when we can handle it. Because I took a job in a room half this size with tables like those, and there were women sitting on each side of the tables. And they had a project for IBM, and you put little pieces together. And you didn't talk to each other. And that was just fine for me at that time because I couldn't talk to anybody. I really didn't have anything to say to anybody because I thought about Pete's drinking all the time and I certainly wasn't going to talk to anybody else about that. And they all had perfect lives, I knew. So I would go to that job and I would come home and that by now all of the things that had happened that happened when there's a disease called alcoholism in the home. And I would come home, and I wasn't so concerned with waiting up for Keith. I just wanted to go to bed and sleep and get a few more hours behind me and think more about when I got all this money together, I was going to leave. And in this time was the last throes of the, of the drink. And something happened in the last month of Keith's drinking. I know today what that's called. I had no idea what it was then because I didn't even know that I was capable of it. And it's called compassion. And a few nights I would get up when I would hear the truck drive into the driveway and I would look out the window to make sure that he was home. And something happened when I looked at Keith because I could no longer conjure up that anger. And you know, anger was always my motivator. Anger was always the thing that gave me the excuse to say the things that I used to say. I would rationalize, I am so mad that I'll say it. And I would say and do those things. But that didn't happen to me when I looked at Keith. And I would watch him, and he would literally kind of roll or fall out of the truck. And by now this man had reduced himself to cleaning swimming pools for other people and he would have on old khaki clothes with chlorine holes in them and old tennis shoes and sometimes his pants were wet and he would get out of the truck and he would kind of bounce off the side of the garage and stagger to the door and he had that totally stoned look about him and it just it was foreign to me I just I knew that I couldn't face it and uh, that's exactly what I thought. I, don't, I can't do anything about his drinking, but I don't want to stay around to find out what's going to happen. And in a certain way, I guess today, I know that is called some kind of detachment or release because I, just, I would just go to bed and just hope that, you know, that the morning would come and everything would be okay. And I would go to my job. And one day Keith called me while I was at work and he told me that he had called AA. Now, you know we forget where we came from so easily because probably that morning or the morning before I had laid across the bed and probably cried, you know, if you'll let him quit drinking, God, I will do anything, anything you want. And when he called me and told me that he had called AA, my first thought was, AA, well, now it's not that bad. Does he think I'm going to go to AA? I knew what AA was because... When he was drinking, I used to watch all the movies about AA. And it, you know what it is. It's dark rooms with yellow light bulbs with fly specks on them and old men sitting around. And uh, I wasn't going to go to that. It certainly wasn't necessary that he went. Just quit drinking and everything would be okay. But I went home because he said this man was going to make a 12-step call on him. And over the years, in my efforts to show him the error of his ways, I had compiled a scrapbook. Now, this scrapbook consisted of everything that I could find that was written about drinking, alcoholism, uh, Swedish people uh, who drank too much, uh, anything to do with drinking. And I had put it all in this scrapbook, copied anything down that I heard on the radio, went to the library, just 
It was a marvelous book. It would have gotten anybody sober if I could have gotten him to read it. But this man came, and he sat on the couch, and he talked to Keith, and he told Keith the most horrendous story I have ever heard. And number one, he was five years sober, but forget that. I didn't even hear that because I didn't know sober. I didn't know sobriety. I didn't know abstinence. But worst of all, he was a bartender. You know, and he sat there and he told Keith this story about how he mistreated his mother and how physically abusive he was. And he did not tell, and he talked a lot about uh, God, and he did not tell Keith that he had to quit drinking. He did not tell Keith he had to do anything. And I thought, well, this is certainly a mistake. But rather than let him go out and do more damage, before he left, I cornered him and I showed him my scrapbook. You know, should he need any more information to carry to these people, that it would be available. Well, he kind of gave me a wide berth and told Keith he'd be back that night to pick him up. And um, that night, he came back and picked him up, took him to a meeting on a Thursday night, July 20th, 1967. And while he was gone, a lady from Hollywood, Judy, called me. And she talked about, maybe I would like to go to Al-Anon. Well, I couldn't have possibly gone right away because I had something important to do. Now, I hadn't done anything unimportant in a long time, but, you know, I mean, what did I need to go to Al-Anon for? Because this was Thursday. He might have to go to a meeting tomorrow night, Friday, and then Saturday, clean out the garage and mow the lawn, and Sunday we'd go on a picnic, and Monday we'd be in a higher income bracket, and Tuesday it'd be all perfect. I knew that. So I told her that possibly I could go the next night. I would work on it. And um, she called, and the next night I decided that uh, I would probably go because it would probably do him a lot of good if I went to some sort of auxiliary along with his AA that he had to go to. And I did something that was very unlike myself to do. I got all dressed up in the only dress that I had because over the years in the drinking, what happened to me, and I don't know if it happened to you or not, but, you know, you begin... you begin. In our little Just for Today pamphlet, you know, it talks about today I will look my best. Well, you know, we sometimes look like we feel, I guess, and feeling like I felt, I dressed appropriately. And that was always in something maybe a couple of sizes too big that someone had given me that I would be more than willing to tell you that someone had given me because he drinks too much, you know. And uh, it was usually very drab looking. And uh, I would, I had this, stature of the victim you know it's just you look pitiful you just it's hard to be pitiful you have to learn to sigh in the right way like maybe when he's watching football and you carry the ironing between him and the tv and when you get right in eye level you you give it that I had a gangling cyst on my wrist one time, and Clancy asked me, he said, you know what causes that, don't you? And I said, no. And he said, it's from doing the Al-Anon salute. <laughs> anyway, that's, I, I had perfected this way of looking like the victim or the pitiful pearl or whatever it was. But this night I was going to go to this Al-Anon thing, and my husband was sober a day in a row, so I knew that they would say to me, how did you do it? And we want your secret, and you must be doing well. You look so well. So I got all dressed up. And, um, you know, one of the other things that I realized that I did that validated this feeling of being the victim was you never, ever buy yourself anything. Never. You know, you buy a lot of things out of season for the children to eat, and then you tell them how much you have sacrificed for that. But don't buy yourself anything. You know, if you're real lucky, you might have a friend who's an Avon uh, lady, and she can give you those little sample lipsticks, you know, and you can dig in there with a bobby pin rather than buying yourself a lipstick. But this night I got all dressed up, and I went to that Al-Anon meeting, Shadow Ranch in Canoga Park. And I walked into that meeting with this lady, knowing that they would all be thrilled to see me, wonderful, who had gotten this man sober. And I don't know how you felt about your first Al-Anon meeting, but uh, I have heard Alcoholics Anonymous members talk about it going to their first AA meeting, and I have heard many Al-Anon members talk about it going to their first Al-Anon meeting, and it was true for me. I walked through the door of my first Al-Anon meeting, and I looked around the room, and I found everything that I was looking for. And it took me about five minutes. 
because I went to that meeting looking for all of the things that made me different and all of the things that made me not need to go. And I found them. You know, you, you find exactly what you're looking for. And I found people who were not dressed up. I found people whose husbands uh, abused them. I found people whose husbands were still drinking. Now, mine was sober. He was at his second meeting that very night. I found people whose children were misbehaving. And I thought, you know, I don't need this. They've all got problems. But I did what I had been taught to do at an early age, and that was to stay till the very end and thank them very nice. Anyway, the, one thing that really aggravated me is they didn't ask me how I got him sober. They did not ask me how he had mistreated me. They just kept talking in little phrases like, well, easy does it, honey, and keep coming back, and all of those kind of things. And I thought, for them, that's okay. But I really have complicated, complex problems, and I need something with a little more girth to it than this Al-Anon stuff. And they're all very kindergarten and solicitous, and I, I just didn't like it. But I stayed till the very end and thanked them for the nice meeting, and I started by the literature table, and I looked down, and right there in plain sight was a comic book. Now, I wasn't allowed to read comic books as a child, and... Um, I just couldn't believe that they would be so elementary that they would reduce it to a comic book. And you know, we get this program when we want it. And uh, we don't necessarily come when we, we should. We come when we want to. Because I had been in Al-Anon a little over two years when I really looked at the comic book. And if you haven't seen it, get it, because they are going to quit printing it. But I could have posed for the picture on the front of that comic book. And I don't know if there's any old window standers in the room, but there she is, a baby in her arms, child on each side, looking out the Venetian blinds. And that's the picture that's on the comic book. And I wouldn't look at it the first night that I went to Al-Anon. <clears throat> and I know what she's doing because I used to do it night after night. You stand at the window and you do the things that make the time go by. My favorite game was if two Volkswagens pass before ten American-made cars, he'll come home before midnight. You play that game. If he doesn't come home by midnight, you just play five out of seven or, you know, whatever. But you do those things to make the time go by. But I was at a meeting gathering up literature for a newcomer once, and I looked at the picture on the comic book. And from that moment on, I realized how really much, very much alike we all are because I gave that comic book a pass the first time that I saw it. I didn't think that it applied to me. And maybe the contents don't, but the picture on the front brought home the way that I used to be. But I left that meeting. I don't need this meeting. I don't need those people. They got problems. My life's perfect. I'm not going to go back to Al-Anon. I'll go to a couple of AA meetings with him because the two that he'd gone to, now I knew they were over 10 and he didn't get home till like, you know, 11, 12, 1 o'clock. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go with him to see if he's really going. He didn't smell like he'd been drinking, but I mean, you know, out till that late didn't seem reasonable to me. And uh, so I would literally ride shotgun with him to meetings several times. And in that time, um, you know, people would say to me, uh, we'd walk in and they'd say, um, are you an alcoholic, honey? And I would say, of course not. I don't drink. Well, it seemed to me they gave me a pass after that and they made this big fuss over Keith. Oh, it's wonderful, Keith. You're not drinking. Oh, it's just wonderful. And a big deal, you know. I don't drink, they don't say anything to me. And anyway, I, did, I didn't like it because they never asked me anything, they never let me participate, and uh, they never let me join in the conversation, and I didn't have any funny stories how I drove covering one eye, and you know, and they talked about drinking, and they laughed a lot, and I saw nothing humorous about the whole thing. So I, would, I didn't go back to the AA meetings with him, nor was I going to Al-Anon. And this went on for about a month, and what happened was in that month, I began to know that I was living with someone I literally didn't know. Began, obviously I didn't because Keith was a daily drinker and he wasn't drinking now. And I like to believe that what for me during the drinking years I had what I called a hypothetical peg draw, driven into my wall and anything that went wrong in our life I hung on the peg, his drinking. 
And when Keith quit drinking, the peg was ripped from the wall, and I had no place to put these feelings. And I didn't know them as feelings then. I just thought that he was just overdoing this AA junk too much. And he was obviously going to only women's stags because it seemed like women called a lot. And he was going to maybe one meeting where they gave him a crash course in little phrases to thwart her. And they were things like, I'm doing the best I can do. Big deal. He wasn't drinking. Or... I'm sober, aren't I? So what's so wonderful about that? And the one that I hated most, that I thought that he saved, really, to just make the hair rise on the back of my neck, and that was, my sponsor says. (laughs) That always was his out. No matter what I wanted him to do, my sponsor says, I have to go to a meeting. And I began to do the thing that happens so often, I began to resent Alcoholics Anonymous, and I began to resent Keith's sobriety. And I didn't understand why he couldn't not go to so many meetings. It never occurred to me he drank every day, then maybe he should go to meetings every day. just never occurred to me. But in this time, as I say, I was making no changes, of course, because I had, had no gauge. He wasn't drinking anymore. We didn't have a great deal to talk about, and he was gone a lot for another reason, and, you know come right down to it, I think had I been in his shoes, I'd have been gone a lot too. But I decided that if I could become as glamorous as those ladies in those Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, perhaps he would stay home more. So in this effort to do, I had had done something hideous to my hair, which I couldn't keep up. But one morning he told me that he was going to go to Tehachapi, which is a men's uh, correctional institution. And um, so I was standing there with this hair that was frosted or whatever they did to it in my robe, I don't know, as uh, Gracie calls them, those it's all your fault robe, and my rubber go-ahead. And I was standing in the kitchen, and uh, he said someone was going to pick him up, and she did. She came right up in our driveway in her long black car to pick him up, and she kind of floated out of the car, and she probably didn't, but I thought at the time she looked maybe like a cross between Farrah Fawcett and Raquel Welch. They all looked that way when I went to AA meetings. All those women did. And she came into the front door of the house, and she swooped in, and she said, Oh, Keith. And she said, Oh, now, now what was her name? <laughs> I thought, you're going to know my name, honey. You're going to see me at a lot of meetings. And off they went to Tehachapi, and I began to take a different attitude about what this thing was all about. Because all of those years of Keith's drinking, you know, I had threatened to leave a lot. And I thought, it just may turn around, and he may leave me. Because it seemed to me that's the way all the women in Alcoholics Anonymous looked, and it made sense to me. They used to drink. Now they went to meetings. They had a lot to talk about. And Keith and I didn't have anything to talk about. And fortunately for me, this lady called the next day, and her husband drank too much, and she had heard about Al-Anon, and she needed to go. Now, I had been to a meeting the month before, and I told her, of course I will take you to Al-Anon. I go to Al-Anon. So I took Valerie to an Al-Anon meeting. And, uh, you know, as I say, we get what we get when we're ready for it. And I went with a different attitude, and I began to listen for the for the feelings and not the situation, because that's what I was looking for in that first meeting, the situation exactly like ours. And I listened to what those people said, and I found out that people got as angry when they're whoever drank one beer as they did when they fell down on the floor drunk. And that's the way I was. If Keith was just admiring a beer commercial too much, I would just get so angry, and that's the way I felt, and I found that other people felt that way. And I began to listen to what they talked about, and I began to listen to them share things that I thought, you know, at that first meeting, people actually talked about having their cars repossessed. Well, you don't do that. You tell them that it's in the garage for repairs. But these people talked about that, and I thought, my goodness, they're, you know, they're really telling it like it is. Keith and I were in St. Louis for three months, and I grew up in Al-Anon, territory where you're only as sick as your secret. And when I got to St. Louis and hit them with that, someone came up to me once and said, you are really an emotional flasher. (laughs) I said, that's the way I was raised. I got to tell you what it's like. They had just never heard of anybody sharing anything so 
base as real feelings. But that's the way I grew up, and fortunately for me, it worked. So I was going to Al-Anon, Keith was going to AA, and, uh, you know, and I began to think about these women in these AA meetings. And I thought, well, I had seen it happen a couple of times. Uh, new lady comes in, and uh, what does he do? He goes out and he gets one of those, remember those curly haircuts that were going around in the early 70s? And he buys one of those Kiana shirts and he unbuttons it to about here and he fluffs up the hair on his chest a lot sometimes to cover the bypass stars, but, scars. But anyway, and then he puts on a couple of gold chains and he runs away with a newcomer. And I had seen that happen to a lot of people in, in Keith's group. So I thought, well, I'll go to these Al-Anon meetings and I will try to do the things that I see the people that have what I think I'd like to have do. And, you know, that's, that's the way Al-Anon, in my opinion, works. I do the things that I see the people doing that look comfortable. And uh, what I heard you say when I first came to Al-Anon is do what's comfortable. And I thought, boy, that's for me. I'm just going to do what I want to do. But I stayed around long enough to realize that's not what you were saying. You were saying to me, do what makes you comfortable. And what that means to me is what I want to do today or what I do today may not be what I want to do, but it's something that's going to make me comfortable down the road. It might not be for a week or a month or a year, but if I do something today that my program asks me to do, it's eventually going to make me comfortable. And that's like making that extra effort to take that newcomer to a meeting. And maybe they don't think they want it, but walking into a meeting a year later and seeing them there as a newcomer. And you get that comfortable feeling, and you get that feeling that you're doing what your program asks you to do. Someone told me that when I came to my first meeting of Al-Anon, I had worked the first half of the first step. And I know for me that's true, because I knew about Al-Anon nine months before I came to, came to the program. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I was powerless. I knew that I could handle it. So when I walked into that meeting, I knew that I had worked the first half of that first step. I didn't have any quarrel with the second step. I mean, when people go flying into bars dragging three kids behind them at 12 o'clock at night and all in your nightgowns, and, you know, there's, you can't really quarrel with being the pillar of the neighborhood, I can tell you. And the third step, I was raised, as I said, in the Midwest, and I just had that good standard, you know, Presbyterian upbringing, so I had no quarrel with that. But I am a physically active person, and I wanted to do the things that made me feel comfortable. And when Keith was about three, four years sober, someone gave him a copy of the 12 steps, the way that Alcoholics Anonymous had originally written them. And originally the seventh step said, humbly on our knees, and they took out the on our knees. But I decided for me to really feel like I was physically doing something, I would put it back in. And so I made a commitment to myself some 17 years ago that I would not go to bed before I had been on my knees. And I can honestly say, you know, what we say and what we do are two different things. And what I say I do is neither here nor there. It's in here that it counts. And I know that this is true for me, that probably, to my knowledge, I have not gone to bed in those 17 years without having been on my knees. And the prayer that I said the first night that I decided to do it until last night and what I'll say tonight is the same. I am so grateful for everything that he's given me. And I'm grateful for everything that he's left me. But I'm more grateful for the things that he's taken away. He's taken away that knot in the gut, the sense of impending doom, all of those things that used to be there that I felt was the way that people lived. I didn't know that there was any other way to live. So I get on my knees every night, and I say that prayer, and I don't know whether anything happens about it, but I can tell you this. My program asks me if I want to be comfortable to have a spiritual side of the program, and so I do that, and I feel like that I have done the thing that my program asks me to do. Keith and I have been very fortunate, and things have happened to us in sobriety, in 19 years of sobriety. But I can tell you this, not one thing that happened in the drinking, anything that happened in the drinking has also happened in sobriety. I used to go to Al-Anon meetings and I would hear people say, I am so grateful I'm married to an alcoholic. And I thought, yes. 
you know, if you gave me a list to put alphabetically, alcoholic wouldn't be on there. And I just couldn't understand that. But I stayed long enough to listen to what they were saying. And today I sit in Al-Anon meetings and I say, I am so grateful that I'm married to an alcoholic, knowing that the new people are just getting crazy. But I am grateful that Keith is an alcoholic. Because I realize that if Keith had decided that he wanted to quit drinking and he had gone to AA and he had told them his story and the things that had happened and how he felt, and then they had said to him, well, I don't think you belong here. And I had gone to Al-Anon and I told them how I felt and what I thought was going to happen and how things were in our lives. And they had said to me, well, I don't think you belong in Al-Anon. You know, where would we be? There wouldn't be any answer for our problems. So I can say today honestly that I am grateful that Keith is an alcoholic because we know what the problem is and we know where our answers are. And I know that I belong in Al-Anon and that's where my answers are. And the things that have happened to us in sobriety, you know, once an alcoholic, uh, always an alcoholic, or once whatever, you know, once a, once a pickle, never a cucumber again. And so what, has, what I have learned is all of the adverse things that have happened in sobriety, I look at in a different way and I handle in a different way. That's the only thing. And that's what Al-Anon has taught me. But in these 19 years, you know, as Keith told you, we have these three children and our daughter who had such a terrible time trying to find her sobriety. And Kim was really, a mother, from a mother's point of view, and truthfully so, is a lovely, lovely, lovely young lady. And she was a beautiful, beautiful young lady. And when she decided that she was going to do the things and live the life that uh, were not acceptable to Keith and I, and she paid that price, and um, she had it all. She worked in a profession where she had all the glitter of Hollywood and doing all of those things. And she married this man who worked at ABC TV, too. And uh, they moved to Pony, Montana. And she, last October, she came down from Pony, and as a birthday gift, we gave her a trip to the Southern California Convention. And she told me that when they moved to Pony, Montana, she thought that she could do it up there on her own because she'd never been able to do it in Los Angeles in her father's home group and with all the people because she'd been in and out of AA for 17 years. And she moved to Pony, Montana, and uh, that's where she found her sobriety in this little town of 60 or so people. And um, she started that meeting, and as Keith said last night, sometimes she goes down to the high school, and she sits there, and she waits, and uh, she says that she prays that someday some of the locals will show up. So far, it's only been the high school senior who's been sentenced to AA, but she has support from the groups in the little towns nearby, and she's on the committee for the state convention, and she's invited Jack, your speaker tonight, and his wife to participate in that meeting um, this spring in Montana. And she's a beautiful young lady, and, and uh, we're proud of her, and uh, I pray for her sobriety. And our middle son is a perfect young man. Just, you know, Keith went through the 60s, never being affected by them too much, just trying to fit in, but he just didn't really fit in there because he's just so straight arrow, and he got married, and he married Annie, and Annie and he lived close to the earth, and they, you know, they made their own clothes and cooked their own food, and everything was just, just so homey called hard living sometimes and when they got married they came down and they wanted to share their wedding day in our backyard the, you know their most personal day they wanted to share in this home that he used to when he was little wouldn't bring kids home for cookies and milk after school and they had their wedding there performed by a member of AA and Annie came out across the patio wearing looked very much like a gunny sack to me but she liked it and, uh, you know, everyone kind of gave it a funny look. But, you know, my Al-Anon has taught me to really look at things for what they are. And I, I decided, you know, his tennis shoes matched her dress, so it really looked okay. <laughs> and our youngest son whipping around the garage, taking his puffs off his whatever, you know. And uh, shortly after that, we asked Kyle to leave our home because we couldn't live like that anymore. And a man went to Las Vegas to write an article on gambling, who's a writer. And he came back and he told us that he saw Kyle in an AA meeting and he had raised his hand as a newcomer. 
Now, I don't think Kyle's an alcoholic. I've never seen him drink, never heard him talk about drinking. I don't, I don't think he drinks. He just has a very difficult time adjusting to adulthood. But he's okay. And, uh, you know, Keith and I have learned to share the good times and what his problems are. He's created them, and he's going to have to live with them. So I'm very pleased with the personalities of my three children. And in this 19 years of sobriety, we've been fortunate to attend those three international conventions. And the one in Denver, I was just overwhelmed with. And the one in New Orleans, Keith chaired the first marathon that they had ever had in an international convention. And they did the room in balloons and slogans and the names of all the country. And they had the theme of that convention in letters as big as this sign up here across the back of the Superdome. And Sunday morning when they brought the candle in, I sat in that, me in that Superdome with all those thousands and thousands of people, and I looked at Keith up on that stage bringing that candle in from that marathon. And, you know, I thought, you know, how did, how did we get here? How did those two young people that had all the dreams and hopes in the world that had all of those things happen to him and walked through that disease called al alcoholism while it was active. How did we end up here in the Superdome in New Orleans with thousands and thousands of sober people and members of Alcoholics Anonymous? And Keith stood in front of that sign and the letters behind him were bigger than taller than him. And it said, you know, the theme, the joy of living. And I looked at that and I looked around the room and I listened to what those people had to say on that stage. And I knew then, and I know now, and it will continue to be if I continue to come to the program of Al-Anon, that the joy of living, I've had more than my share, and I am so grateful, and I thank you for that. Thank you.